0: to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. Tonight's Speakeasy Chat is being brought to you by the Audiobook Reviewer. Visit audiobookreviewer.com to find hundreds of audiobook reviews, learn how to get your audiobook reviewed, and find out more about the ABR Audiobook Listener Awards. There's also a link to audioafterdark.org, the website for Audiobooks After Dark, the audiobook-centric podcast being created by audiobook reviewers Paul Stokes and Brian Crespin. And now, come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest here in the Speakeasy tonight is an audio and earphone award-winning audiobook producer, director, and narrator. She also owns and operates a production and coaching company dedicated to audiobooks and other voiceover genres, and is an acting professor at Pace University in the BFA for Theater program. Robin Miles, thanks for joining me in the Speakeasy tonight.
1: Well, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Rich. I'm really glad to be here.
0: I am glad you are too. I'm glad we got this uh, worked out. I know you are an incredibly busy lady.
1: <laughs> uh, kind of. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I know that you have a lot of lot of irons and a lot of fires. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's true. That's true.
0: So that's great. I'm so glad you could make it in, Robin. What do you drink at the night?
1: I am having a French hard cider. Um, it's barely hard. I mean, it's sort of like. Uh, Cider with a mini kick. It's called Clos Normande.
0: I have not heard of that one. Is this an apple or a pear or something else?
1: Oh, it's an apple. Apple. It's an apple All right. Cider. Yeah.
0: I um I have had Angry Orchard. I know that they're one of the bigger brands that's available kind of everywhere, and I've also had a few other ones here locally, but I. I don't know that I've had any local hard cider that, that is actually produced locally here in Tucson. We have sort of an up-and-coming distillery like every place in the world, right? A, a boom in micro distilleries. Um, but I'm not sure that anybody here is making, uh, making cider yet. But I do love a good uh, apple cider or, uh, or a good hard pear cider too.
1: That sounds delicious. I've never had a pear cider.
0: Oh, yeah. There's uh, Ace. Ace makes a good pear cider. And, uh, and there are a bunch of other ones there, too. But uh, yeah. my wife actually well, got... Is, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: No. I was going to say, this is new for me. It was uh, brought um, by a guest at Thanksgiving, and we didn't have it. And I decided to give it a try. And you like it? I do.
0: That's good. Do. That's always good when somebody brings something mm-hmm. for Thanksgiving that you like.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> she said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's fine. That's what, you, that's what you do here in a speakeasy. Uh, my wife actually got me a hard cider making kit from the Brooklyn there Brew Shop. Uh, I think it was a couple of years ago. And mm-hmm. uh, it made a good batch of, of cider. It's quite a bit of work, just like making beer at home is. But it's, it's not so much the end product uh, in terms of taste that you're looking for. It's the end product in terms of, look what I did.
1: You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, absolute point of pride. Yeah, sure.
0: exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was, that was a lot of fun. I am not having a hard cider tonight. I am joining you in a, uh, a wee dram of 18 year old Aberlore scotch. Um, Ooh. I, I am the, I am the happy beneficiary of a packing mistake, maybe because it's a busy time around the holidays. I'm not really sure, wow. but I, uh, I ordered some 12 year old. Aberlore scotch because I hadn't tried it before. I was running low on the Oban 14 year that I had, and I thought, huh, this looks uh-uh. interesting, so I'll go ahead and buy this this 12-year. That sounds good. Decent price point. I think it was 55 something like that. And mm-hmm. I got the box, and I opened it up, and the second I saw this bottle with the 18 on the front of it, I thought, oh, my <gasps> God, what did I buy? So I checked the packing slip, and the packing slip said 12-year-old scotch. So I looked at the bottle. I thought, is something wrong here? <laughs> and all I can think is that somebody pulled the wrong bottle. Uh, I went yeah. online, and this is like – this is more than twice what I paid um, for for the 12-year-old. So uh, I thought – about you know contacting them and saying you made a mistake and about 20 milliseconds later i thought no i think i'll just uh, leave things the way they are <laughs> The universe
1: gonna. the universe made a mistake in your favor and I think you should accept it.
0: Exactly. And if they, if they charge me for it later because they figured out their mistake, well, okay, I already opened the bottle. I had some I didn't send it back. so i'll I'll take the hit but I, I kind of doubt that's gonna happen. They're just gonna be scratching um, yeah. their heads. yeah not worth gonna. not worth their effort to look that kind of thing up. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so I'm gonna have a little scotch while you have your cider. Thank you for coming in. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that is good.
1: Good? Oh, okay. It is. It I'm is. a bourbon girl myself. Can't do scotch too peaty, but I do the bourbons.
0: Uh, and what kind of bourbon is your favorite bourbon?
1: Well, I'm sort of between Buffalo Trace and Woodford Reserve, depending on whether I want a little bit more sweet or a little bit more kind of, I don't know, a smoothie smoky. Both
0: classics. Totally understand. Um, mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Okay, something a little more smoky, but you don't like peated scotch.
1: I don't like the peaty flavor. The, it gets in my nose and it just doesn't sit right.
0: Yeah, I I, underst- I, I hear that. I've got a friend who was really into scotch and, um, you know, tried a bunch of different kinds. And she said one day she had scotch and she thought, bleh. And uh, <laughs> I don't think she's had any scotch since. <laughs> but she, no, does, she does like the bourbons. So um, yeah. it, in that same shipment, I got a bottle of uh, Russell's Reserve 10-year-old bourbon. And uh, it is quite mm. good. Mm. So. we do
1: have a we have a wonderful place in new york where you can go and actually we have more than one um it's the what's it i'm trying to remember the, the name of it now the something lounge but um they have bourbons rise whiskeys the the something library this
0: Oh, I think I've seen pictures of that, where, where the walls are just lined with bottles.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yes. I, I mean, it's very, very classy. and um, But it's wonderful. And the color of bourbon and scotch is, you know, when light goes through the glass, yeah. it's sort of around you because it's reflecting off the bottles. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, just cozy. I'm going to have
0: cool. to look that up at APAC this year um, because I would love to be in a place like that. On the other hand... It might be a little dangerous because of <laughs> cost, and because yes. I can't really have a taste of everything that you have in one night. You know, I mean that yeah. would be impossible. So yeah. uh, it might be a little dangerous, but I would I would love to see that. We we have a couple of places here in Tucson that have that boast over a hundred different types of whiskey at each of them, and I always like going there because I can always find something that I haven't tried before. So it's always oh, fun. Yeah.
1: Well, when you come to New York, you better let me know because we do speakeasies. Yes. And there are about five of them that I know.
0: I would I would love to do that. Um, always always, always a fun time drinking in New York. There are plenty of places yeah. to go. So yes. uh, I will definitely let you know. In the meantime... After we, I, in the after meantime, we finish our audio book. Yes, yes. In, <laughs> in the meantime, I will just be enjoying my 18-year here at home and probably not be spending that kind of money on a scotch again. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so anyway, this is great. Thank you so much for coming in. So, uh, so Robin, where are you from? I know that you're in New York now. Where are you from originally?
1: I am originally from the Jersey shore, although you probably can't tell from the way I speak. Um,
0: it doesn't come across. No,
1: it doesn't come across really, but my family was, uh, half Jamaican, half mainland. Um, African-American, and, and uh, with lots of different influences in between. So um, I'm from a little town called Matawan on the coast. I love my hometown. We have one claim to fame in Matawan, and that is the story of Jaws, that shark attack, was based on a shark attack in my town in the late 1800s, I think.
2: No kidding. Um,
1: a shark swam up the estuary into, like, where the estuary meets the local lake and uh, attacked a kid. And so
0: that is one of my favorite movies of all time. That's great. That's That's great. great. And, um, and how long have you been in New York?
1: Oh my goodness. I think I've been here. Um, it feels like I was born here. I know I wasn't, but I came here after college. I did Yale for undergrad and then I I went home and I was with my parents for three months and I said, I gotta go. I gotta go spawn upstream. I've gotta go. (laughs) Where did I go? I went to New York. That's and I great. lived there for a while and then I went back to grad school, drama school, and then came back to New York. So it's pretty much been here. So what did, you do,
0: what did you do at Yale?
1: Uh, I was a theater studies major, which was really a divisional major in humanities um, with a Spanish minor. And um, it was a really great program. But it was almost more of a dramaturgy program on the undergraduate level. Uh, the graduate school is really the one that has the practical acting program. Although I will say some really great actors did come out of the undergrad program and some have gone on through the drama school like Paul Giannotti did that uh-huh. like a, we did undergrad and then we both did grad. Um, Angela Bassett did undergrad and then grad. Um, and then uh, other actors like Melissa Errico and uh alessandra nivola were undergrads but didn't go to the drama school so i think it's a good place to plant some seeds if you want to be an actor
0: yeah sounds like it and then what did you do for uh, grad school where'd you go and what did you do
1: oh i went right back to new haven i did Yale drama school um which really means i owe a lot of money (laughs) a little money um it was a really great experience um I knew when I was 17 that I wanted to go to the Yale drama school. So I was trying to pick an undergrad place that would be the stepping stone to that. Um, Oh,
0: so you weren't even thinking Yale to begin with. You were just thinking that's where you want to end up. Yeah. And then you went there to begin with.
1: And I had had applied to Carnegie Mellon and I I got in there and applied to Northwestern, their theater program. I had gotten into those. um, And I realized I was at a crossroads at 17. I realized that I liked school a lot. I I was a crazy math head. I did I did uh, calculus when I was a senior. I loved and science. I loved physics. And I didn't want to go into a BFA program uh, for theater because I wanted to be able to take classes in like, you know, Chinese history and things. And so I had gotten into Yale, but I'd also gotten into the other programs based on audition. And I thought, oh my God, what do I do? I'm 17. I'm making a a hardcore choice here
0: yeah but how and, uh, how great to have that kind of choice available
1: oh lucky yeah, privileged.
0: that is I, great so to incredible. hear that
1: and so, it's also it's I, also
0: great to hear that you're a math head since i was a math major in college i'm also kind of a math geek and i always laugh at woo-hoo. the math jokes online <laughs>
1: yeah yeah woo-hoo. my really? aunt i just found out recently and can you imagine this this is my great aunt I found out my, my cousins did an obit that landed in the Times, and, of course, they shared it with everybody. I didn't even know. I had a great aunt who was like one of those hidden figures ladies. Oh, no she kidding. Math, she, she didn't work at NASA, but she had a math PhD, I think. And, and, you know, this is someone who died at the age of 106 two years ago.
0: And so at that time, holy cow! A woman getting yeah. a PhD in math—that is holy unusual cow. back then. Yeah.
1: So I thought, all right, there must be some genes that I'm using here. Exactly. I better, <laughs> I better use them. I use them now doing budgets when I when I produce and I hire actors. I got to back out. How much can I pay them? Got to do the P and H, the union thing. Okay. So <laughs> that's what I use my math for now.
0: Comes in handy. I didn't use math for. Uh, quite a few years after I graduated, but it did come in handy. What what I learned funny. most from college, I think, is not so much, it wasn't so much what I learned in the classes, it was learning how to learn and learning, mm-hmm. learning how to find resources. And so even though I had only taken minimal programming classes, I ended up going into programming where yeah. calculus and non-Euclidean geometry didn't really enter in, but right. figuring out how to go about doing what i was supposed to be doing um i learned a lot of those skills in school.
1: Oh, that's cool.
0: So, well that's great. So uh, so then you got them. And what is your master's in specifically?
1: Uh it's in acting, theater and acting.
0: That's great. So, did you spend yeah. a lot of time on the stage?
1: Well, yeah, i guess i did. i was kind of always on the stage and i even ran a theater in a small basement which it was a squash court at Yale, actually. That's um, great. So it was
0: a separate theater that was not run by the school, but by you?
1: So it was an interesting situation at Yale for the undergrads because, you know, there's the major theater, the, the university theater, mm-hmm. and they do a main stage. But then there are all these other theater groups. Uh, it's just all over campus. And in my particular college, we had this squash court in the basement. We didn't need another squash court and, um, and, uh, an alum from years earlier had provided and they had turned it into a chapel. It was called Nicholas chapel. So it was there for private time and reflection, but I guess there were enough spaces for that too. And it got turned into a theater with risers and it was like a small black box, really small black box theater. And we had a few Licos and Fresnels, the lighting, um, I raided my mother's closet um, and her her trunk of old clothes, and so we had a few costumes.
0: How Um, funny. This is great. Kind of a homegrown basement theater company. I love it. Theater.
1: And then, you know, someone was running it when I came in, and then they graduated, and I started – just running it. And then someone else took it over from me and I'm sure it's still going.
0: Yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's great. It was pretty cool. And what did you mostly do? Did you mostly do acting or did you get into directing or what was your field of expertise in your small black box theater?
1: Well, it was, you know, the black box, what I did was I, I really kind of administrated it. I did a couple of shows in it. Uh, I did the Scottish play in there and I did Romeo and Juliet in there. Um, but I was in charge of people coming to me proposing, we'd like to use your theater, is this time open? Um, and I would sort of administrate that. Ah. So I kind of ran it from a, more of a managerial standpoint. And then um, I did do, I think, two directing projects, one full, one kind of half. Um, but I just acted and sang and danced in things all over campus, whoever was doing whatever they were doing.
0: That's great. That's uh... fun. That's good to hear that you were able to, you know, do all kinds of different things and actually uh, sort of run a company as well.
1: Yeah, it is a possibility. It, I tell people this all the time. Yes, you can. Yes, you
0: can. <laughs> Believe in <laughs> yourself and then just do it.
1: Then do it. Yeah.
0: yeah. that's great. So how did you get into voiceover
1: work? Well, um, I came to New York and I had always been a person who did like community service. And that's because my parents always had something that they did related to community service and when I was in high school I was in the chorus and we would take the chorus and we would go to retirement homes and we would sing for people and so I just felt strange not having some form of community service and I thought well what can I what can I do for anybody I'm just an actor Mm -hmm. and I thought well I could read books to people who are blind maybe so I looked up in the um Yellow Pages, remember those? <laughs> oh yeah,
0: long time ago, but I remember <laughs> them.
1: Yeah, the actual book. And I found um, American Foundation for the Blind and I called them, I said, well, I'm this actor and I'm just graduating from yale Down School and da da, da da They said, we like your voice, why don't you come in and audition? I did, and I was rejected by the client, which is the National Library Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was completely rejected. <laughs> and, and then they said, but we really think that you're going to be good at this, but this client likes things a certain way. Let us just give you a little coaching. And so they coached me into a much, a kind of a flatter read because at the time, that's really what they were looking for. Not too much interpretation, not too much acting, Yeah, just me, read the let,
0: material. Let me guess. You're talking about sometime in the nineties, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. That was, that's, uh, I've heard that before. In fact, I think that was the same organization that, uh, Barbara Rosenblatt was, uh, yeah. was doing work for.
1: That's right, and yeah. I met Barbara. I met Barbara around that time. We did a, uh, a musical, a short musical together uh, in New York, and we were talking at one point. She said, "You do audiobooks? books?" I do audiobooks. books. You do audiobooks. <laughs> it was just <laughs> a beautiful thing. But um, long story short, I got the job after I, I tried that second time, and um, that is
0: so great that they that they heard you and they thought. Well, we think that this will work out great, but they want it this way. So let us help you get to the point that they they will yeah. like that. Yeah, that is so cool.
1: That's really terrific. And uh, I got approved for fiction, then nonfiction, and then they had me read for poetry. And my grandfather was a was a Shakespeare and poetry professor, so I was being read poetry and Victorian poetry and Shakespeare all my life growing up. So um, the poetry thing worked out. That that's one went great. Through, Good fit. Hmm.
0: excellent so so you got into voiceover in audiobooks
1: um actually no I was at Cunningham Escote Pini which is a, a large commercial house in New York and so I was doing voiceover oh okay um, all right you know I was doing commercials I was doing voiceovers but at that time um and it is I guess it was early 90s um there are certain things I, I don't do or I've decided that there's just certain things I don't want to do.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: at the time, cigarette and alcohol advertising to the black community, I was not uh, a supporter of. You know, it was a lot of malt liquor ads and mm-hmm. and cigarettes. And these are two things that were really, really killing the community. And so I said, well, I won't do these two things. And as it turned out, that was what the majority of my auditions were at the time. Mm. So that's, that's it, tough. It, be,
2: it's,
0: it, it can yeah. be hard to make those choices, but, um, it can be, yeah. everybody has to make those choices at some point. Mm-hmm. And I try really hard. I, you know, a lot, this comes up a lot in the forums online about, well, should I do this political ad for the other party? Or should I do mm-hmm. this, this, uh, audio that's, uh, you know, a little bit past my comfort zone. And my answer is always, nobody can answer that, but you. And, yeah. um, I try not to try not to judge and think, well, just because I wouldn't do that the way you're describing it, that doesn't mean that you're a bad person if you do it. But uh, I think that every voice actor at some point or another, they, they just have to look at things. And if you've already thought about it for a while going in, you're going to be ahead of the game because you're going to have a better idea of, uh, of what's going to work for you.
1: Yeah. And I, I can tell you that I, I have these conversations with people and it seems that it's sexuality, religion, and politics that are the three things um, that create a boundary mm-hmm. for people.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I know for me, um, even though I come from a very strong and devout Christian family, uh, I cannot do work that attacks the LGBTQ community. that's that's a no man's land for me, just mm-hmm. I won't cross that. Um, and I will also not do what I call prosperity Christianity, oh,
2: that basically
1: right. says if you're wealthy, you're wealthy because God wants you to be, and you're being blessed. And if you're poor, well, you need to get right with God. I will not go there. Yeah. And
0: Creflo Dollar.
1: And, um, those, are, yeah, 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 it's my my uh, my boundary line. Um, and then, interestingly, I do I do have. Uh, an erotic persona, you know, that I do, you know, rom- romance, steamy stuff in, mm-hmm. but there are pieces that are just really, really crass. Mm, um, yeah. and, and it's not romance as much as kind of raw, uh, stuff. I have a very hard time bringing myself to that material.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, did, I did get in a situation once where, you know, I had a child at home and I needed my health insurance and I was right at that boundary where I wasn't going to make enough. And I had a baby at home, and I needed to get another job. So I asked one of my publishers that I worked for, could you throw me a title before September 31st? And they said, I'm sure we can find something for you. And what they found was, oh, my goodness. Oh, so, so racy. um, All right, just to give you an example, by page four, I closed the book and I went, oh, my God, I don't know if I can speak these words. (laughs) By page 11, I was calling my mom. Mom, what do I do? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. But I was now in a situation where I had asked for the work. It was given and it was needed.
2: Yep.
1: So what was I going to do? Yeah. And I had to create a persona um, and a a pseudonym and a (laughs) voce both Mm -hmm. who could do that book because it was necessary. Yep. And I didn't, you know, business-wise, I had asked for something and I couldn't just go back on my, at that point, on my word.
0: Right. No, that's so very true. So I created a person true. who
1: could do it. Yeah. And that was straight up acting. I created a character who could speak those words.
0: Mm-hmm. I, that's a great story. um, And, <laughs> and I think that it, it just points out that a lot of times things are situational and it's the reason that I try really hard not to judge people when I hear the stories that they're telling, thinking to myself, well, I wouldn't do that, but But, everything's a situation, everybody's in a different place. I remember when I was doing voiceovers uh, back in the early 2000s, I went into my agent's uh, um, office in San Francisco, and I was sitting there waiting for my turn to go into the booth, and I heard these two guys talking who knew each other, and Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't trying to eavesdrop, but I couldn't help but hear what they were saying on the couch, like two seats away from me. And uh, one of them was saying, "Oh yeah, I just auditioned for this uh, I think it was a kFC spot, and they talked uh-huh. for a minute, and the other guy said, "I thought you were a vegetarian and uh, <laughs> and the other guy said who can, who can afford ethics and and it was you know it was it was clear that um, he was in a situation where he needed to make money." Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so everybody's in a different situation. So it's kind of like, no, you, you, you make choices for a number of different reasons. It's not always, it's not always black and white. In fact, you know what? It's never black and white. (laughs) (laughs) No,
1: it's almost never black and white. It's 50 shades of gray. It's a hundred shades of gray. Yep. Uh, So many different variables. Oh, so many. And uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that happens on camera famously because, you know, anything that happens on camera is uh, has much more publicity surrounding it. But mm-hmm. we do face that same sort of thing in voiceover.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So now at this point in audiobooks, mm-hmm. is there anything that you would say, no, I'm not going to do that. Or, I mean, you've worked with, uh, you, you've got, you've done hundreds of audiobooks, Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's about, I think I'm getting close to the 400 mark now. Yeah. I mean, it's between 375 and 400.
0: And, and you've uh, worked with the big publishing companies. So is there anything that you tell mm-hmm. them don't send me anything like this because I'm really not going to do it.
1: No. Um, I think partly it's just the style of how I read. Um, I think they choose things that they hear my voice on and they tend, and I, I, um, I'm very comfortable with long sentence length, long thoughts, complex thoughts, a lot of allegorical visual projections, lots of, um, Imagery
2: mm-hmm. and
1: you don't you don't find that in the kind of stuff that I tend to object to so that, <laughs> that's um, true <laughs> No short um, sentences was someone, right to the point uh, Yeah, <laughs> and there was someone recently I, I think it was podium publishing and um, approached me and said, you know We've heard what you do and you haven't been doing much fantasy and we think you're gonna be great on fantasy and I went, I love fantasy. I I like watching it and I like to read it. So why would this not be the case? And, um, I took a plunge in and fantasy and sci-fi and speculative fiction too, which is, I think got, got feet more in realism than the fantasy, but all of that has opened up for me and they were so right. It It is, it's a natural fit for me.
0: Yeah. So, when I, when I looked you up, I saw a lot of titles that looked like it was fantasy.
1: Mm hmm. And I think it was probably Audible that really started me down that path. And I was so thrilled to do it because I'm a Doctor Who fan and a Star (laughs) Trek Next Generation fan, (laughs) Firefly, Firefly fan. Um, All that. All those types of genres um, really excite me, Um, as well as my other thing is I adore historical fiction. And that was really my thing before I broke into sci-fi, but I had sort of set out sci-fi fantasy speculative as a place I wanted to be. And thank goodness. I'm, I wasn't the only one who wanted me there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it sounds but, like a great fit. It sounds like that uh, mm-hmm. they, somebody else recognized that you would be good at that and you liked it. So perfect fit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah.
0: cool. So do you record at home or do you go to studios? Do you, um uh, how, how do you manage to record your audiobooks?
1: Well, typically, I will go to a studio, um, either on-site at Ashad or someplace like that, uh, down down to John Marshall or uh, Charleston Montebello Studio, uh, which is down on 42nd Street in the Film Center building. Um, I also, I I have a room. (laughs) It doesn't have a booth in it yet. Um, And I just narrowly missed a booth. Uh, There was one for sale, and I said, okay, I'm going to do this, and I'll figure out how to get that last bit of soundproofing. Uh, but I'm going to have to wait until 2019. I'm hoping to have it set up by March. Um, but I generally, I go into a booth. Uh, I have some friends who are engineers who have places where I can I can buy booth time from them. Or I rent oh, that's food. good. Um, and they're wonderful hosts. And they troubleshoot whenever anything goes wrong. So one way or another, I either go into a, a large studio that has a, a, a glass uh, where I can turn the the monitor towards the glass, and bring the mouse inside the booth with me.
0: Oh, so you are like, so you are using somebody else's studio, but you're doing all the work.
1: Right, and I engineer myself.
0: Got it. That's
1: Which good. Um, nice well, option. I will. Say, it's a great option, and I will say the challenge. I think for I'm just sort of sharing this with the whole narrator world. The challenge I think is in being in the booth and having your left brain essentially. It's partitioned to do that technical job. And your right brain is really partitioned on the other side to do the creative, emotional work of acting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have to find a way, and it takes a little while, I think, to build the bridge between the left and the right so that when you travel into the left to, to... Move that cursor and drop it where you need it to be. You don't lose the thread of where you are emotionally, and it's a breath. To me, it's a breathing thing. I just breathe in it as if I'm just on hold in that moment, and it's still it's still flowing. Um, and I've gotten it to a point now where um, I use minimal resources on the left brain so that I can stay in the story and the emotional reality of that moment.
2: Mm-hmm. It, but it it's is,
1: definitely
0: doable. It, it's definitely doable, but I think you're absolutely right. It's difficult, especially when you're starting out. and I know people who've been doing oh, yeah. this for a while who still have a lot of trouble as soon as they have to do something on the technical side, oh, I gotta stop, mm-hmm. I gotta back up with my cursor right. and start here and then punch in. and even with a you know five second pre-roll or something really long, it's still difficult for them to get back in. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I do think that it's a challenge. I completely agree.
1: It's not the ideal situation. I, I don't think our best work is ever done that way. I think our best work is really done when we have an engineer and a director. But at the minimum,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, an engineer at the very least, an engineer. And you know, there's a whole a narr- there's a whole engineer community of people who have varying degrees of directorial skills.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I've just I've trained a couple of of engineers now who have moved into producing. And they said, my God, you know, I came and engineered your class and got a chance to sit through hours of you talking to actors. And now I have a vocabulary. I know how to talk to them. I know I was listening when you stopped. He said, but I don't know how else I would have gotten that. Right. Right. Because, you know, they often come from a music background. So they're very sensitive to tones and cadence and timing. Um, But it is, I think there are challenges all over our business for people who participate on so many different levels.
0: So how did you get into being able to do the directing and the producing instead of just doing, well, I shouldn't say just, but instead of being, you know, (laughs) instead of focusing on the narration, how's that, um, you started producing and directing as well. How did that happen?
1: Well, it's a story. I was doing a show on Broadway called the Violet Hour and about two weeks into the production, I was in the last scene in the last act and I had this Um, I had a three-word sentence, it's not true, and every time I would speak it, in a highly emotional state, I had a lisp. It's not true. The the S was leaking air out of the sides, and (laughs) I thought, what the heck is that? Flash forward, that was November 2004, I think, and then flash forward to by April 2005, I had a full-blown lisp all during the day in the evening, I had neurological damage in my forearms. I couldn't – I had an 18-month-old. I couldn't lift her. Oh, my goodness. And um, nobody knew what it was. And it began a two – almost two-and-a-half-year saga of going from doctor to doctor, trying to figure out what the heck it was. Neurologists, infectious disease specialists. I think I had 70 doctor's appointments in 2006. Oh, my God. Um, And – No one knew what it was, and then finally, a friend of mine said, you know, you might try going to a rheumatologist. I had this thing when we were in grad school, and I got diagnosed with such and such, and I thought, well, okay. And I even had doctors tell me, I don't think you're gonna find what you're looking for there, but I understand you're frustrated. Well, I disregarded them, and I went, and I found out in 48 hours that I had uh, an autoimmune disorder, Sjogren syndrome, and I got medication for it, and half of my symptoms began to disappear Within two what was it a week two weeks the other one?
0: Oh, but that was amazing having all of a sudden after, you know Years of nobody having a clue what was going on I know of show and I know I I don't know anybody who had or I didn't know anybody who has it but um, I Can imagine that that must have been incredibly
1: frustrating Oh frustrating and Imagine imagine being on Broadway, being on the cover of a magazine and interviewed in the Times, and your star is rising, and then you start lisping, and then you yeah. can't lift a of food. It was just a, a really cruel moment, a no, juncture. No doubt. Um, however, I have to say, I am a person. I try to look for what is, what's the lesson embedded in anything, and it was hard. Not as hard as what some people go through. I have to say, you know, I I read about people who are paraplegic. And I mean, this is nothing like that. But I learned what else I could do. And I thought I was angry at God. And I thought, how could you give me talent and then take it away like this? How could you do that? And I thought, well, I'm going to get back at you, God. I'm going to give away everything I know to any actor I can before (laughs) before you take me. That's great. And that was sort of the goal was to figure out. How did I do what I was doing that was going successfully? How how do I talk about it? How do I teach it? How do I give it away before I snuff out? Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of what began my my teaching and also my directing. Um, I have to thank Michelle McGonagall, who really helped me with that, um, and the studios at Talking Books, which don't exist anymore at, at American Foundation for the Blind. I started directing in house, and I was there celebrity and author director, as well as just directing, um, dozens of really good and up and coming actors. Um, and it also gave me a way to challenge my students. So if I had a student, I thought well, this person has potential. If I had a multi-voiced book, let's say four actors, all doing first person, I could slip one or two students in there that mm-hmm. I thought could handle. Um, and I'll, and I'll I mean, bet they and
0: loved that.
1: Oh, it was. It worked out really well. Yeah, uh, I was able to, you know, help help people get their first leg up. Like Suzanne Torin was the person who gave me my leg up. She spoke to Recorded Books and said, "I think you need to listen to this woman," and she got me uh, my first audition in the commercial world. So it, this this community, this narrator community, is one of the most generous I have ever seen. Um, I,
0: I completely agree.
1: Amazing. Yeah. Um, the actual kind of opposite of the, the typical complaint about the acting community and how, uh, self-centered we can be. Well, I don't find that to be the case at all with, with people who do audiobooks, not at all.
0: I haven't either. And I, I know, uh, I, I know what you're talking about with that. I was, uh, I, mm-hmm. my acting coach in San Francisco for a while was, um, uh, Bobby, uh, uh, I can't remember his last name now. Anyway, uh, we went to class, and, and he would always say, you know, the work of acting is fantastic. The business of acting sucks.
2: <laughs> and,
0: and and he told he would tell us about when he went to L.A. to be an actor before he was doing the coaching thing. Mm-hmm. And he said that after a year, he was getting jobs, but after a year, he hated it. And so that's why he came back to San Francisco and he started teaching and he loved it. And he would warn people, you have to understand what this business is like. And I am happy that I have seen none of that in the narrator community Um, or if any, none of what he described. He would talk about going on auditions and the people who would try to sabotage other people who were auditioning. And yeah. I just, I would hear those stories and think, yeah, no wonder he says the business of acting sucks. Um, and I've, Mm -hmm. I've seen nothing like that in the narrator community. I I love it. I I love being a part of it.
1: Yeah, I do too. I've had my theater stage TV film, my me too moments, my, you know, and I've always been a person who, I guess I'm just indignant Um, I always felt like, no, I don't have to sit on anybody's couch and get groped. I have amazing talent and okay. All right. So I'm just going to have to give up this job. (laughs) (laughs) Walk walk away. Um, but I, I try to play the long game. I always have tried to play the long game. Um, so, but yeah, I love her. I love our peeps. I do love our peeps.
0: Yeah, me too. It's, and it's great that you had gotten that, uh, that foot in by that point. And so you had Mm -hmm. made a lot of contacts so that when it came to the point where for whatever reason, in your case, a medical condition, you weren't able Mm -hmm. to narrate, you were able to leverage the information and the contacts that you had made to that point to actually do something else.
1: Yeah. I was able to structure my classes. Um, the only thing I know is Yale undergrad, Yale drama. So, I mean, class structure, sort of what you put in it. I, I'm a, how do I put this? I'm a teach a man to fish person, not a give a man to fish, a mm-hmm. uh, give a man a fish person. Right. So unless I'm doing a demo, if I'm doing a demo for someone, yeah, I'm your director and I'm going to tell you, do it this way because it's going to make this impression and we want to leave that footprint behind so people hire you. Um, do it this way. But if if I'm teaching someone, I need them to have a takeaway, a technique that's now a tool in their belt that they can use when I am nowhere near.
0: Yeah, and I I, I always love that tool analogy because it's all about a whole lot of different tools, and some tools work for some people, and some tools work yeah. for other people, and having mm-hmm. a lot of things to uh, to, to draw from. Yeah. yeah, to draw from exactly um, to make a right. choice on what you're going to use.
1: Um, but it's that cool. idea too of you you come in contact with a text. and because you've learned to spot things in the writing and to sense things, you can make artistic choices in the moment because you know we get no rehearsal. right <laughs> That serve that story, that serve that text. Um, and you don't have to be told or you don't have to be shaped per se. But that's that's different. That's training. Um, that's a different animal, the, the teach a man to fish mm-hmm. type of approach, but that's the only way I, you know, that's the only way I run my classes anyway.
0: So did you <laughs> get, so did you get into teaching and coaching at the same time that you started doing the producing and directing for the same reason?
1: Actually, yeah, I was, I was directing and producing during the day and, um, I would run classes at night and I used to do about five classes a year. Um, and that started in about 2006, maybe seven. I also incorporated in 2007. So Voxpertise, you know, became a real entity and, um, that was very exciting. Um, sure, yeah. I was unable to resolve the, the speech impediment issue. I think it was about October, 2007. Um, and, uh, I was working for Macmillan as a director and I was sitting in the booth with a, a young actress, she was doing something on Broadway. And we got maybe f- f- 15, 20 minutes in and she burst into tears, she was so upset. And I said, what's the matter, what's going on? She said, my best friend is you got a brain tumor and having surgery and I'm just so worried and I'm so upset. And I said, oh, I understand. I had just come from a friend who was dying of um, Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I really understood her situation. And I suggested, I said, you know, take a few minutes, as much time as you need, but maybe you can lose yourself in this world of the story as a little bit of an outlet for yourself Mm -hmm. um, to get yourself away from it. And she said, that's a good idea. And she went back in the booth. And then about 15 minutes later, she just froze and said, I'm sorry, I can't be here right now. I have someplace more important that I have to be. And she... Put her watch on and stood with dignity and walked out of the booth. She, and she said, "I'm sorry." And I thought she she needed to be with her friend. So yeah. I called, I called the I called Laura and I said, "Well, this is a first. Let me tell you." <laughs> now, mind you, I this was October 2007. I had just gotten my speech back. I think in July, and I could sit and read for half an hour with no lisping, no impediment. Mm -hmm. Um, but I wasn't sure it was really back, but I was hoping. Mm -hmm. Um, so I called Laura and I said, now, look, I got files at home of actors who I've trained, who I've worked with. I could recast this for you. I could go home and do that. And we could start again tomorrow. I said, we could just fold up the day and, um, you can call, you know, the casting director that you used and they can find you somebody else. I said, you can also have me do it. You don't know me as a narrator, but here's my website. So I hang up the phone. Ten minutes later, she says, I'm going to have you do it. (laughs) (laughs) And so I took off my watch and my earrings and went in the booth. And I had skimmed the book the night before. And I was literally flying home from the funeral of that friend of mine. And I popped into the booth and I looked at the engineer instead of sitting next to him, but through the glass. And I said, let's rock and roll. Oh, wow. And that was my first book back. It went beautifully and I knew, okay, I'm over this thing, whatever it was, it's done.
0: That's great. And how long, do you remember how long you were able to narrate in that first session?
1: Oh my gosh. I think I was there for four and a half hours.
0: Wow. So that is and the
1: whole time it was just like, God, you're driving this bus. <laughs> 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 I
0: didn't
1: know what was going to happen. So that's but, great.
0: Uh, After that amount of time. Yeah. yeah. At that point you can say, Hey, I'm back.
1: Yeah and uh, got a great review. So no, there, no, uh, there was no, there was no, nothing negative that came out of that. I was just, and that start all of a sudden I had an, a second career back again.
0: Sure. Yeah. So what would you say now in terms of the work that you're doing, how is your time split up? How much of your time is spent narrating and how much is spent directing and how much is spent doing other things?
1: Wow. Um, I am almost exclusively in the booth and Honestly, the titles that keep coming my way, I don't want to turn any of them down. So I've been directing a little bit. Um, again, I'm a—I'm a, I'm an actor's director. So, um, and, and because I teach, I make a good author's director. So I've been doing that a couple of times for, you know, Achette or any of the other publishers that need me, really. Also, having a young actor or someone who's new to audiobooks, I have a vocabulary, you know, it makes it easy to talk to them.
2: Sure, yeah. <clears throat>
1: I used to do celebrities too back in the day, uh, so I had uh, Richard Dreyfuss and um, David Strathairn, who was just wonderful to work with. Um, Sigourney Weaver, you know, I had a, a lot of people coming through who don't typically uh, do audiobooks, although David Strathairn does, um, and and that's an interesting situation too because I think um, I think a lot of celebrities are used to being in the booth with somebody. Um, who isn't really a director and they're used to film directors and television directors. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not so sure they actually trust us when we get into the booth. And so for me, the very first part of working with a celebrity or working with a high profile author is establishing trust, confidence and getting Mm buy-in so that person knows that I'm going to help shape their performance. I'm not going to let them look bad. There's no way I'm going to let them look bad on a book. And, and that tends to make the situation flow.
0: Sure. Yeah. I would, I would say that that is true for an actor looking at a director in uh, any medium. Um, Yeah. I know that, I know that I had a couple of shows that I did on stage where I thought this director wants me to do what? And, (laughs) and I just thought. You can't be serious. How How is it that you think this is going to play right? And what do you know it did? And so I learned from okay. those experiences, trust the director, even when mm. it doesn't seem like it. And I was never disappointed. And so I think that, um, you know, being able to build that trust quickly is a good thing.
1: It's a good thing. It's really important. You know, also, you have to be able to play very low status if someone needs that.
0: Mm, and I right. have a
1: problem Ad-
0: adapt to um, the situation.
1: Absolutely. I had one person say he on his break, he called his wife and said, "They gave me the lo- most lovely little assistant."
2: <laughs> <laughs> I
1: thought, "Fine, if you need to think of me that way and that facilitates the flow of our work, fine." Yeah. And I did. I cleaned his glasses for him. Everything. Wow. Got him snacks and water and clean glasses and but it worked.
0: And you got a so, great performance from him, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So have you been coaching ever
1: since? Uh, yes, I have, actually. And I used to coach a lot more, but as I said, the demands right now for me to actually be in the booth are, they're kind of fast and furious. Mm-hmm. And so um, I need to establish a booth here at home so that I have enough time on my hands to handle both the the classes again and the the narrating because I'm going to run down to the booth to make pickups. 15, right. you know, literally 30 pickups. I got to take a half an hour train ride down and, and find my booth unoccupied and take a back, you know, so. Wow. Um,
0: yeah. Tra- that's a, I hadn't really thought about that. The pickup situation when you're yeah. doing what you were describing earlier and you don't have a booth in the house. That's not just a, Oh, let me pop into the booth for half an hour kind of situation. Right.
1: Yeah. And I'll get these back to you in 15 minutes. So I can usually get it done, turn around very quickly, but at the same time, it's not as quick as if I had a booth. Right. So that's. Um um I'm shooting for March of 2019 to have everything set up. I think I can do it.
0: Well that's yeah. great. I, I I are you building it yourself or are you going to buy like a whisper room or do you know yet?
1: Well, I'm leaning towards the Studio Bricks.
0: Studio Bricks. Yeah, but I, I've heard good things about yeah, Studio but Bricks.
1: I don't know if I want that if I need the double or the triple wall yet. I I'm actually going to put a DB on my phone
2: mm-hmm. and
1: measure the levels in this room when the neighbor's kids are you know plotting around upstairs and mm-hmm. when the people in the hallway are doing their very loud leave taking i yeah. <laughs> i want to see and measure uh, do i need the triple wall i might i also um i have a 10 foot nine foot nine foot window bays mm. that's a lot of glass yeah, it is. so i'm gonna yep. i'm gonna need to put a little something in there uh, i'm on the first floor too so but it's it, i think it's doable
0: I'm just guessing from what you just said, you're gonna mm-hmm. go for the triple.
1: Yeah. I
2: <laughs> okay.
0: I hope it uh, I hope it goes smoothly, whatever you get. I just mm-hmm. I just built my booth uh, earlier this mm-hmm. year and it has made nice. a huge difference in the amount of external sound that gets through. Um, it still, Mm -hmm. there are still a few things that come through and I, I was pretty serious about all six walls and this and that, and you know, blah, 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 but there are still a few sounds that get through the trash trucks, um, the dog Mm -hmm. barking, right. right, Practically in the same room. Not quite, you know, there are a few things that get through, but it is so much better than it used to be. And it does make a huge difference in productivity.
1: Productivity. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the thing. So, So I'm, I'm ready to, I'm ready to leap, um, but I have, you know, I, I, I got to get everything ready. And then I got to go through this house and get rid of so much
0: stuff. <laughs> Believe me, it out. does take a lot of room. I, <laughs> I say, oh, come and see my booth to people who are coming over to see the house. And they walk into the room it's and they're all, oh, this like takes up the whole room. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's
1: really something. So when, did, I,
0: when so you're still doing the coaching thing. Um, mm-hmm. Not as much as you used to, but you're still doing that. But when did you start teaching at Pace University?
1: Oh, uh, two years ago. Um, a friend of mine is on staff and she teaches, I think their core acting classes. She's a terrific actress. I went to Yale drama with her and she said, I need to get this class filled. I think you're the person for it. And she came and took my audiobook class. So she knew how, how I was as a teacher.
0: Oh, that's great. It's not just a resume. It's I've seen you in action.
1: I, you, yeah. And I did a demo for her. She's terrific. So, um, Julie said, why don't you apply for this job? And it was script analysis. And I said, okay. Now I've taught Shakespeare before and I've taught voiceover before and I've taught um, uh, commercial technique when I was at SUNY Purchase years ago uh, in the conservatory there. And I thought, well, I I was really more considered a speech teacher. I also was their accent coach. That's what I used to do. I mean, I was brought in to be the accent coach. The second year they said, uh, can you do Shakespeare? Um, and being the granddaughter of a Shakespeare professor, I duly said yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I taught script analysis and I realized how much I knew the first year as I taught it. I was, I was just, you know what I mean? That's what teaching does. It actually reveals to you how much you do and do not know sure, and, yeah. and where you can plug the gaps. But, um, I love coming up with a program uh, a curriculum that takes them through hurdles that I think any actor that wants to do this, do this professionally really needs to hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a it's a it's a class that teaches an actor how to look at a script and figure out where the clues are for an actor, not where the symbolism is and where all the in- allegories are and the the reverberation into politics and such. We talk about that. But really what I'm teaching them is, okay, what's going on in the scene? What do you want from the other person you're looking at? Where can you find it in the text? And how can you make that happen in your voice and your body, Mm
2: -hmm. you
1: know, in in actual action? So I started out there and they were happy with the class and and the students were happy and they were coming through with skills, which I think is always the ultimate ultimate measure. that you know, they get to their next class and they had some skills. Mm -hmm. And so... um, I was brought on to do acting three, which is their modern modern class. I take them from Eugene O'Neill through about 1980, 90 Mm -hmm. Uh, two rounds of playwrights that are kind of exemplary of the style of the time styles, plural of the time. Um, The content that was, you know, there's always thematic things that you see in different um, eras. And then I have a co-teacher who is an amazing New York City theater director, Margot Bordelon. And she takes them and does the really cutting edge plays that sometimes are being workshopped or something she's just directed. She she's uh, she worked on uh, Too Heavy for Your Pocket last year at the American Place Theater. And so the kids are working on that this year, a play That's that was true. written just um, that she helped the playwright de- develop. So she's, um, she's wonderful. And we work really well together. So that's my, that's how it happened.
0: That's fantastic. It sounds like a a great class. I was a huge Eugene O'Neill fan. I just, this was Mm -hmm. long before I was ever acting. I stumbled on Eugene O'Neill. I don't even remember how Mm -hmm. it happened, but, um, stumbled on it, read a lot of his early, like one acts and, um, Mm -hmm. and I, I don't remember any of the titles, but then I finally got up to some of his, um, you know, more uh, famous plays like Moon for the Misbegotten and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And then I, I came upon uh, The Iceman Cometh at some point. I think yeah. I've I think i read that play a dozen times at this point. I, I just absolutely love that play, and I got to see it in mm-hmm. L.A. at one point. I think it was at the Mark Taper or someplace. Mm-hmm. They were doing a revival probably in the... Uh,
1: was that the uh, Kevin Spacey revival or the... Not Nathan that I,
0: Lickley. not that I remember, but I have to say that it was long enough ago to where I wouldn't have known who Kevin Spacey was at the time. Um, but it was uh, it was a phenomenal production. I loved every minute of it, yeah. uh, having having been such a fan of the play at that point, and um, and then some of his later stuff too. I, I just uh, so mm-hmm. just just hearing about that makes me think I wish I could take that class from you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: i i love those playwrights um they were so courageous forging into this real emotional territory Mm
2: -hmm.
1: especially given what had come before they were just they were creating a whole new whole new genre whole new style yeah
2: um
1: so i have like you know the arthur miller and the Clifford odette's play you know just giving them an idea of OK, so we've got this now, but, you know, you need to know where this came from, because mm-hmm. sometimes playwrights will write something and they'll borrow from an old style or intentionally they'll use a structure and then try to modernize it. And if you don't know what the old structure is, you kind of miss some of the opportunities to do something with it. Right. right. You know, right. so I, I start them out with the Greeks.
0: Sound, oh, yeah. Classics. Um, yeah. Wow, that sounds great, and uh, sounds like you're really enjoying that too. I don't know how you find time for that when you're when you're uh, spending so much time narrating.
1: Well, I will say, uh, the first year you do anything, maybe the first two years you do anything, it is tremendously time consuming mm-hmm. um, because everything you're choosing, you don't have a you don't have a tread with it, you don't have a history with it. Once you've taught the class once, now you've got. All the supports that you need. You've got a lecture and you got, or an outline for what you're going to do in class. Um, you know where the milestones are. And at that point, you just tweak it to make it better. You respond to the individual uh, input that people bring into the classroom. But basically, you have this blueprint for mm-hmm. how to do the class. Um, it still has to be malleable, but um, that's what makes it possible.
0: That's great, but still, it still takes time. It just sounds like you are an incredibly busy person. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I'm trying to be a little less busy because work life balance is um, a challenge.
0: I, I'm sure, and uh, it it is for a lot of people. I know it it has been for me lately. I'm I'm uh, there have been a lot of things that happened this past year that I'm hoping things will, for me, um, kind of smooth out this coming year, even if I'm still busy. It will be. It will feel more comfortable being that busy, but it's always a process. Um, you, you know, mm-hmm. some, sometimes you just have to go through things. And I, <laughs> I know people who have gone through far more than I've been going through, um, and yeah. have managed to you know make everything work. So, it it sounds like you have all the right tools to uh, to make that happen. So uh, so, Robin, give me give me a few words of wisdom for aspiring narrators out there. I've got. Uh, I've most of my listeners are narrators, and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of new narrators, but some some narrators who have quite a few titles under their belt already. Um, uh, what's, what's the most important thing as far as you're concerned as a narrator and as somebody who has directed a lot of narrators uh, over the years?
1: Well, I would have to say the thing that allows me to tell a good story is not beating myself up, not overjudging or over listening to myself, Um, But realizing that every single day when I go into the booth, there are different forces at work or conditions or circumstances on me. And so what I would say to all narrators is give yourself time to settle in, especially if you're new, settle in to the job and the booth every time you go towards the task. Um, The first few minutes that you read sometimes are just a matter of you calming down, settling in, and then you hook in. And you, your ego is now sort of to the side and you're letting the clues and the content and the emotions from the, from the text into your body so that you can essentially let them out again on your voice. Um, and I think sometimes what happens is we expect too much of ourselves. In the first 10 minutes, if you know you need that 10 minutes of warm-up just to shed yourself and allow the other things and people in, start before you get home do a warm-up or get to the studio early or if you have a booth you let yourself have 10 minutes before you actually record or record it, dump it and then when you're in it and you know you're in the, you're in the pocket as a jazz musician might say <laughs> then start the actual record. That, but don't beat yourself up and don't over-listen, over-critically. If it takes, you know what I do um, is I sit in the most physically vulnerable position I can be in, which means I sit and I have my, my knees open, like in second position, so that my whole front, my belly is open and relaxed. And if I'm feeling tense or I've got stuff on my mind, I take my wrists And I just set them on the edge of the desk on the left and the right so that there's an openness across my chest as well. If I were an animal, I'd be in the kill position, exposing my neck, essentially which is like, here, kill me. I give up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but it's an extremely vulnerable physical position to put yourself in. And when you do that, but the body is really powerful. You put your body in a vulnerable position and it begins to, to go into a vulnerable state. And that's what sometimes pulls me open when I have things that are pulling my attention or there's fear. I feel overly vulnerable. But that's what allows me to get into it. And I would just say, let yourself yourself have that and observe. What's my pattern so that the next time I go in, I I, I know what to do in this situation. I just open myself up. I breathe. Breathe that text in.
0: That is great. All right. I love that. I I am going to do that the very next time I'm uh, <laughs> I'm narrating which is probably going to be tomorrow morning and I'm going to remember that and um, and use that because I have found so many times that I get in the booth and I'm like, okay, I got this open, I got this ready okay, start this going to go okay, record and um, it isn't so it, it isn't so much about making mistakes. It's about um Feeling more frustrated than I need to when a mistake does happen and yeah, and it's yeah I just I get in my head and that ends up kind of snowballing sometimes
2: Yeah, oh my
0: god and what you just described makes me think of the things that I've learned uh, about de-stressing techniques in general Um, and if you do that right when you go in the booth you're going to be ahead of the game. So, um mm-hmm. I I think that sounds like great advice. I love that.
1: <laughs> it, it has worked for me and um <laughs> saved me from um having a bad first hour of just fighting myself. It,
0: fighting yourself exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect way to put it is that I find that I'm doing that sometimes. So, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah. I love that. I will definitely give that a try.
1: I'm glad. That's good. So, I mean, in terms of other things, um, don't forget to have fun, you know, especially when you're new and you're trying to establish with the world around the the world of our business. Hey, here I am. And I'm good at what I do. Um, that can be really stressful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Let allow, let and allow, and then go do your networking things afterwards.
0: That is great. You no. Know? That is great. I think that is a uh, great advice to end it on. So Robin, thank mm-hmm. you so much for coming in. This, this has oh, been great. Been, my pleasure. I hope your, uh, I hope your cider was, was just as good as it was on Thanksgiving.
1: Um, well I didn't have any on Thanksgiving. I waited till tonight.
0: <laughs> oh, you didn't have any then. So they brought it, but you didn't yep. have any that night.
1: Yeah, it was in the fridge. It ah, was in
0: the fridge. Well, mm-hmm. that's good. I hope it ended up working out well that way.
1: Yes, and I hope you're having good weather in Tucson and that you continue to.
0: Well, as far as I'm concerned, it is freezing cold here in Tucson. It only got up to 65 today, I think. And oh. um I oh I got to say, you live you live in Tucson for we've been here 6 years now and you get acclimated to the summers. And what yeah. ends up happening now is that when it gets below 70, when it when it doesn't hit 70 during the day, I am freezing for freezing. the entire day. I, I never thought that would happen. People kept telling me, oh, yeah, you'll get acclimated. Yeah, yeah whatever. Okay, I'll get used to the heat. It's, I, it's I more than just, just getting neat. used
1: to it. Wow. Okay, so you must be Jamaican then, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I am not. I, I like the heat. I mean, one of the reasons we moved here was because the Bay Area, which most people will say has fantastic weather... And Mm -hmm. I would generally agree it was just too cold for too much of the year. And so we wanted someplace warmer. Uh And so we looked at, you know, maybe Florida. Well, you got the humidity. Tucson, yeah, it gets pretty damn hot. Um, And Mm -hmm. so we looked at a few different places and we decided on Tucson. And we love it here. And it does get pretty oppressive by the time you hit September. But then once winter hits, it's like, okay, I'm ready for this to be over. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, uh, but aside from the fact that it is too cold for me, it, uh, we are having nice weather. It's, it's not a problem I'll here. So
1: I'll live vicariously through you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for coming in, Robin. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Oh, where have can people,
0: where, where can people find you online if they want to, uh, look into oh. the possibility of, uh, coaching once you get, you know, have more time for that or, or anything like starting that. In
1: March, starting in March. I'm, um, I'm online at voxpertise.com. It's spelled V-O-X-pertise.
0: All right. That's great. <laughs> um, I will definitely put that yeah. in the show notes.
1: Mm-hmm. Terrific.
0: And you've got uh, contact information there.
1: Contact information there. Um, email. Um, there's also a, like a contact form. And um, I am a mom. So I always say to people, if I missed your email on the first pla- on the first pass, and I don't have an assistant at the moment. <laughs> Just shoot me another one. Makes just sense. Shoot. What about yeah. uh,
0: Twitter? Are you on Twitter?
1: I am. I'm uh, at rmilesvox. miles
0: vox. Okay, that's great. Yeah. I will put that in there as well.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm uh, tackling social media.
0: <laughs> I'm, <doing myself. laughs> I'm tackling social media as well. I'm just not doing very well at it lately. But you know, well, hopefully, as I said, things things will work out better in 2019. So anyway, th- this is great. Thanks again, Robin. I really appreciate your time.
1: My pleasure. Good to meet
0: you, Rich. You too. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Robin Miles for coming in for a drink. I was inspired by the story of her battle with Sjogren's Syndrome and how she was able to take something positive from the experience and give back to the audiobook community, and I hope you were too. Thanks also to the sponsor for tonight's episode, the Audiobook Reviewer. Check out audiobookreviewer.com for audiobook reviews, how to get your audiobook reviewed, and information about the ABR Audiobook Listener Awards and the Audiobooks After Dark podcast. You can find the Audiobook Speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the Audiobook Speakeasy. If you're enjoying our Speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated. Quick shout-out tonight to Cecily White for a very generous donation. Thanks for helping me keep the lights on here in the speakeasy, Cecily. Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook.
2: Cheers! (laughs) ¶¶